Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, April 27th. Today we have an interview with John Bathgate. Uh, he's an investor at NZS Capital, uh, a firm that we really like kind of recently. John Rotanti kind of uh, introduced us to that firm because they wrote a good paper called Complexity Investing, which I really recommend. Uh, the conversation was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of stuff that was usually over my head, but he did a really good job explaining it. Yes, before. great great introduction to semiconductors. Yeah. It's not going to give you the whole overview because that, there's a ton of moving parts there, but I learned a lot about semiconductors and other stuff. Um, we kind of talk about their controversial opinion that moats are kind of dead, um, but we'll let them explain, you know, or Which, let him kind of explain their philosophy there. It's one of the more convincing arguments I've ever heard. Uh, yeah, not sure. We I like agree. the strategy a lot. Yeah, love their strategy, resiliency, and op- uh, an optionality. Not sure I agree with the moat part, but you know, agree to disagree. <laughs> everyone has uh, everyone has their own opinion. So, uh, but afterwards we have our show notes. Uh, like always, we've changed the format around a little bit. Um, we have our sales pitch because Seven Investing new recs are coming out soon. I'm actually I'm, kind of excited for this. I'm getting to the, you know, I used to just like, uh, I used to kind of look forward to them, but I'm kind of eager to see them this time. Yeah, each month. And it's because their track record speaks for itself. Since inception, over a year ago, up 16% average return versus the S&P 500. And that is in a time period when the S&P 500 has done really, really well. Yeah. So even in a bull market, they're doing phenomenally. Also, um, it... Some stocks have gotten cheaper over the last month, which makes it a little more exciting because then you know mm-hmm. they are getting a little more value uh, from those picks, which is what we tend to like. Um, am I missing anything else? No, but you have to explain how they can take no. advantage. Uh, Code you- CCM at checkout. Use it. You get $10 off. It's normally 17 bucks a month. You get $10 off that first month. month. So 7 bucks. Try it out. If you like it, we think you will. Helps you with your research process. But if you don't, it's just 7 bucks. So you don't give it give that first month a shot here. Okay, without further ado, here's our interview with John Bathgate. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Today, we are welcomed by John Bathgate. He is an investor at NCS Capital. Um, Before we dive into NCS and kind of the strategy there, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? How did you get there? Maybe what kind of when did you get into finance to begin with? Yeah, um, so I've always been um, interested in investing. Like I trace it back to when I was in fifth grade, I was allowed to uh, do a project on like any subject in the world. And I, I picked the stock market actually, which like in hindsight, I was like a weird fifth grader. I should have picked like the NBA or like video games or whatever, like most normal fifth graders. But um, I did the stock market and honestly, just like it's like clicked for me right away. Uh, my dad was actually an options trader. And so I kind of like grew up around um, just like investing in business analysis um, and, and like still like honestly talk stocks daily with him um, even even to this day. Um, and so I, I went to college on, on East Coast and um, went in thinking I was going to major in econ. Um, I figured that would kind of translate well to a job in finance. And I got there and actually just like hated it. And I, I just sucked at econ. And so I um, pivoted and um, ended up majoring in math. And I, I think since I majored 
in math, I didn't do like the kind of traditional, like, um, you know, undergrad finance route. And so I actually graduated from college without a job. Um, and so I moved back to Denver, uh, where we're based here at, at NZS and um, was living in my parents' basement. And I applied for three finance jobs in Denver. Like Denver at the time was not like a booming metropolis for like the financial world. Um, so I applied for an investment banking job, a uh, financial advisor um, job, and then a research um, job at, uh, at Janus Capital, um, which is a long only based in Denver. And um, I think through some luck and some persistence, I had like 20 interviews at Janus um, and they ended up bringing me on as a research associate. Um, and that was in March of uh, 2008. So my, my first day in the industry actually was um, the day that uh, it was announced that Bear Stearns was gonna be sold to JP Morgan for $2 a share. And that, that was kind of like the unofficial like beginning of the, of the global financial crisis. Right. And so um, I honestly got there. And I was like, I'm going to be the first guy out of here. Like they're going to fire me in three months because, um, you know, the markets were imploding and um, there were there were, you know, layoffs and throughout the whole industry and that kind of thing. But luckily, luckily, I was like the lowest paid guy, you know, on, on the floor. And so I was, was able to kind of like make it through the the downturn. And then my career at uh, at Janus, like I kind of think I think a lot of big companies are like this, but the asset management the asset management industry um, is like this also. Like it's a little bit of a war of attrition that if you can kind of like keep your head down and do good work, then um, you can kind of be like the next uh, the next person up for any role that, that opens up. And that was kind of the way my career unfolded. And so um, I started out on on the uh, on the tech team at Janus in 2008, um, just doing like heavy modeling work and helping out the tech team with um, honestly the stuff that no one else wanted to do. Um, and at the time it was just kind of like luck that I, I was working on um, some of the iconic companies in the chip industry now, like um, TSMC and ASML and, and Texas Instruments were kind of like the first companies I ended up working on. Um, and then one of the analysts I worked for um, actually ended up leaving the firm about 18 months after I joined. And um, I had the chance to kind of step up and cover some stocks pretty early in my career. And I actually covered renewable energy, which at the time um, I thought I was like on top of the world. It was like a growing sector. Like everyone wanted to be green. I mean, it was kind of like this little bit of a green bubble, to be honest. Um, and um, it turned out the whole renewable energy space kind of imploded in, in 2011. Uh, and that was actually a really good learning experience to watch um, a lot of stocks go down like 80 to 90% in a short period of time, just because they honestly had um, you know bad business models and, and tough economics. Um, and so like, like a, a lot of renewables analysts did, um, back then there, there's a lot of, um, technology overlap between kind of like solar and semiconductors because it's a solar is a semiconductor based technology and a silicon based technology. Um, and so luckily when kind of like my coverage evaporated, I had the chance to kind of like, um, pivot and, and cover semiconductors. And so, um, that, that's where I kind of started to cut my teeth, um, covering tech, um, in, in the semi-space. And then um, again, like another war of attrition thing, my, my boss at the time, who was Britton Johns, who's actually um, one of the co-founders here at NCS Capital, um, ended up kind of like moving up into more of a leadership role on the team. So I got to absorb his coverage um, and cover um, and do kind of like all the semiconductor and tech supply chain coverage um, at, at Janus. And then he ended up resigning and I took his role again as, um, as the lead of the team or the, the co-lead of the tech research team. And so our job um, as co-leads were to kind of cover stocks and recommend stocks to, um, we managed about 160 billion out of, out of Denver and kind of long only products. And so I was responsible for, for recommending ideas there, but also I'm um, setting the direction a little more just for overall tech research um, for, for the firm and, and tech strategy, which was, um, which was really fun and really good experience. And so um, I spent 12 years at Janus and, and overall it was just, it was an amazing experience. Like I got really lucky one to be around a lot of really good investors. Like there were investors that were more GARP focused. There were investors that were momentum. There were investors that were value. Some were high turnover, some were low turnover. And like, it was just an amazing experience to see good investors that, um, you know, everyone kind of does this a different way and there's like no one way to make money. Um, and so, and then the other thing is, you know, given, given the asset base, like most of the companies that we were 
shareholders in that I covered, like we were generally kind of front page holders or, you know, top five holders, or in some case, the biggest shareholder of certain companies. And so just from like a management access and honestly getting to like, and like having to learn the industry or any industry extremely quickly, like that was just an amazing experience pretty early in my career to get um, that kind of exposure to, um, to, to tech in general. Um, and so then in early, so I was at Janus for 12 years. And then in early 2020, I had the chance to um, kind of reunite with two of my really close mentors from Janus to join um, NZS Capital. And so they had formed NZS um, in mid 2019 and the portfolio had gone live um, kind of like the first day of trading in, in 2020. And um, I thought of it as just like a chance to um, give me part of something special, kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to start something from scratch with people that I really trust and admire. And I thought, you know, had a really good chance of, of succeeding. Um, and so, and also we get to like build our culture from scratch, which I think is like a really cool attribute of, of being able to, to start something. Um, and so I joined, um, I joined NZS in early March of 2020. And like literally the, I had one week off between NZS and, uh, and, and, and Janus. And it happened to be kind of the week when like COVID really took the world by storm. And like my, the first Monday after I'd resigned from Janus, the market was down like 900 um, basis points that day. Um, and so we were kind of like thrown into the fire to kind of get the portfolio ready for um, kind of the shock, the market shock and economic shock of COVID. But it was actually kind of fun in a weird way because it was like having the band back together. There are, there are four of us here now. We all worked at Janus together for, um, for more than 10 years. Um, and so we've kind of been head down since, um, you know, since I joined in March, just working on the portfolio and, um, you know, marketing and that kind of thing. Um, and so that, that's kind of my story of, uh, you know, how I got in the industry and, and ending up here at, uh, at NZS. Yeah, it seems like uh, you need to tell us if you're going to move jobs again, because <laughs> it seems like the timing of that has been when the uh, the markets meltdown. But. Yeah, it is. It is like crazy. They're both in March and it really is like amazing the timing of like the two, um, obviously, um, kind of like recession type, um, yeah. you know, bear, or depression type bear markets we've had um, throughout my investing lifetime or both when I switched jobs. So um, that's a good point. Yeah. And for anyone unfamiliar with NZS, can you explain the investment strategy? I know it means net zero sum. Um, so can you explain that a bit, what your guys' philosophy is? Yeah. Yeah. There's like a few key points here and feel free to um, interrupt me if any of these don't make sense. So yeah. So the name of the firm is NZS Capital. And so our, our overall framework for investing is, is we're generally looking for companies that create more value than they take. And so they're creating value for their customers, their employees, and they're also like not doing harm to, um, to society or to the environment and things like that. Um, and so that's, that's our, that's obviously we believe in this enough that we, you know, name, um, name the firm after it. And so we can talk about kind of what that means in terms of how we assess companies. Um, and I, I would say it's not like a pure ESG strategy, but there is like, we've just kind of been like practicing ESG like subconsciously for a long time before it came into vogue. And so we're certainly, um, I, I think we just want to be on the right side of time with the, uh, the companies that we're involved with. And so there is a little bit of an ESG element in terms of like, we're not going to be, be investing with companies that are like doing things that are really bad for society or, or the environment kind of thing. Um, and I would, I would say the fundamental, um, kind of like premise that, that sets up our um, investment philosophy is, is we really view the world as a complex adaptive system. And so um, what that really means is like, is the world is inherently unpredictable. Um, and so like generally, I think a lot of um, financial theory thinks in terms of like bell curves and like normal distributions, but in, um, in complex systems, you actually don't really see, you don't tend to see normal distributions. You tend to see what are called power loss, which is like the 80-20 rule where like in investing, it could be, um, you know, a, a small percentage of stocks actually determine most of the market performance over time. Or um, in, in like in economics, it could be, you know, one or two companies tend to take most of the profits in a given industry. And that could be like, you know, Apple has 90% of the profits in the smartphone industry, or two or three companies have the lion's share of digital advertising. 
And so um, generally that that's just like the the overall framing for um, how we how we look at the world. It's not through like this is like an XYZ standard devi deviation event. It's that um, the world is an incredibly complex and like um, really hard to predict like black swan kind of outcomes happen a lot more often than, than you would think. And so um, the way we translate that into our investment philosophy is we really look for companies that are adaptable is number one. And so we kind of try to look for companies that can thrive in any environment because we really need to earn power as an example of what company or what the iPhone cycle is going to be or whatever it is. Like it's just not on our framework. It's really like what are the companies that are the most adaptable in the whole economy to digital like Chipotle that's honestly just pivoted their whole business in um, 2020 so to digital Chipotle lanes and like pushing people online and just like flourishing so, while like the um, restaurant industry is getting decimated. Like that'd be a really good example of something that would be that I would consider, you know, adaptable. Um, and so the last piece of that is our, um, our portfolio construction philosophy is, is a little bit different also. So we basically run two portfolios in one. We have um, what we call the resilient part of the portfolio, which is the, the top half of the portfolio. And that's, um, these are, kind of like more like compounding value kind of companies um, that we would run very low turnover. Like, you know, like this is kind of a 10% turnover bucket of the portfolio. Um, and the idea there, it's not playing to not lose, but certainly we are looking for companies that have kind of like a narrow range of outcomes. Um, and then the bottom half of the portfolio is what we call the optionality tail of the portfolio. And that's almost more like a venture capital type model. Like we're really playing for a slugging percentage there more than um, having a high batting average. And so what we're, what we're looking for is asymmetry in companies that can be up like three, five, 10 X and worrying more about the, or thinking more about the upside scenario than the downside scenario. And so um, we can go into the, the details of resilience and optionality more, but we actually, we cap the, um, we cap the, the position size of our optionality stocks at 150 basis points. And then we start our resilient stocks at 250 basis points. And okay. so in the middle of that, um, you know, 150 to 250 basis point, um, part of the portfolio, we literally don't own, any, we don't own any stocks. And so this is like a part of our process is a discipline that we don't let any stocks get what we call stuck in the middle where they don't have the asymmetry to belong in the, uh, optionality part of the portfolio, but then they're not resilient enough to be in the head. And so, um, that, that's kind of a, a big part of our, um, investment philosophy also. So, um, there's a lot in there, so I'll, I'll kind of pause there, but um, that, yeah. that's kind of like our overall framework. Yeah, I guess one thing to clear up, I'll ask about resiliency more in detail. Um, when you say the 150 basis points and 250 basis points, that's minimum 250 basis points for the resiliency ones. Am I hearing that correctly or is it maximum? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yes, it's so our, our minimum position size is okay. 250. And we, and we also like, well, not if a stock is, you know, in the resilient part of the portfolio and it's actually underperforming and drifts down, um, you know, below 250 basis points. And we will make the decision, like, is this something we want to add capital to? Or is there a reason that it's kind of slipped into the middle? And maybe, um, honestly, it's usually it'd be stuck in the middle and we would be more likely to sell it than let it kind of move into optionality land. But that's um, that's the way we think about it. OK, and then, yeah, can you go into resiliency more in detail? I mean, what do you look for? Um, you know, if you can, can you give any examples uh, of how like you've kind of looked at a company in the past maybe, or I mean, I guess it's only been a year, but anything at, at Janus as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should have said, so we, um, we developed this framework together. Um, especially, um, uh, Brent Johns and Brad Singlin, the founders of NZS that were, they were kind of close mentors of mine at Janus. Um, we developed this, this framework. Um, they actually wrote, wrote this, uh, white paper that's actually on the NZS website. Now uh, they wrote that in 2014. And so this is something we've kind of been, been doing, um, for a while. And so, um, in, in terms of resilience, like it, we say, you know, when you see it, which is a totally unsatisfying answer, but there, there's a few things we look for. One of them is like a relatively narrow range of outcomes. And so like, we don't want to predict the future, but like an example would be um, like Microsoft is a resilient position where it's like the prediction that 
you know, most enterprises will be renewing their Office 365 subscriptions, um, you know, 10 years from now, and that Azure will be one of the main two or three players in the cloud market, you know, five to 10 years from now, I think are like relatively what we call, we call these broad predictions where like, they're very likely to happen unless we're like living in like a Mad Max world where, you know, the, the economy has like gone off the rails or something. Right. And so um, I, I would say that'd be a good example of something that's, that has a narrow range of outcomes that we would, we would view as resilient. And just like to take a step back, there, there are a few kind of characteristics that we don't necessarily look for these, but like tend to get into the resilient part of the portfolio. Um, one of them is, um, is just mission criticality. It's like, you know, obviously every enterprise, you know, pay, renews their, their Microsoft license, like 99.9% of the time, unless you're going out of business or something. Um, and so that would be, um, that'd be the first one. Another one would be like platform economics, um, like something like, like Google, where it's like, you get the flyer alphabet where you get the, the flywheel going. And then to my point on power laws, like usually, especially in digital markets, if you can get the flywheel going, you know, usually one, two or three players take all the economics in a given market. And so, um, something like that we could consider resilient. Um, and then there's also just kind of more like just companies that have scale and power law benefits. Like I mentioned, TSMC is a company we've followed for a long time. That's a company where, um, it's not necessarily like a true platform in terms of like a technology, like an internet based platform, but it really is like a company that's been able to extract like 90% of the profits in, in one market. And so I would, um, put that, um, a stock like that in, in that bucket. And so, um, that's generally the way we think about it. So it's, it's just, you know, we won't only own like companies that have a narrow range of like earnings revisions or things like that. We'll own semiconductor stocks and we own like a company like NVIDIA, which honestly will have, um, you know, pretty wide range in, um, yeah. in, in cycles and earnings and things like that. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Some lumpiness. It's not just like software stocks. It's just like, you know, march up and grow 10% a year. Um, but uh, we, we look for something where we, we feel like the range of outcomes is relatively narrow on like a five to 10 year horizon. Okay. So would it be fair to say that like the resiliency portion is companies that you think uh, the outcomes a little more predictable, I guess, um, in terms of like you, the likelihood of success is a little higher. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and part of it is like I mentioned, it's a, it, they're, it's a 10% turnover portion of the portfolio. And so these are really kind of like the set it and forget it stocks where like, we really, we almost don't want to have to worry about whether or not they're going to be successful. Like I feel like everything we own in the head of the portfolio, um, for one reason or another, like we just have a very high degree of confidence that, um, you know, whether it's also like it's execution and the quality of the management team and the quality of the business that, um, you know, that it's going to be, um, you know, successful and relevant on like a five to 10 year horizon. Do, I mean, I know it's, I guess, well, the framework was set a while ago, but I know you guys are only a year in. So do companies ever evolve from sort of that optionality side to the more resilient side kind of as they grow? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I would say once or twice a year, there'll be a company where we'll actually take it from the optionality part of the portfolio to the, the head of the portfolio. Um, I can give you, so there was one, there actually, there were two examples last year um, where we did this. One was, um, was Lamb Research, which, was a, which is a semiconductor equipment company. And um, just the business models and semi-equipment have changed so much over the last five years, really, that this is a company we've actually owned Lamb um, as an optional position for like six or seven years now. But given, especially how they handled the last down cycle, like the company was incredibly profitable through, there was a pretty tough down cycle in semi-equipment in, um, in 2019. And they actually just bought back a bunch of stock and they, they had like, they trough at like a 25% operating margin. And so you compare that to, this was a company, you know, for the last two decades, like you had to worry about them, like losing money or breaking, being break even in a down cycle. And now they're minting money and buying back stock through the cycle. So that, that's one example of one we 
crossed over. Um, the other one was T-Mobile, where it started out as optionality, and then we actually, um, you know, they merged with Sprint, and their their Spectrum portfolio um, all of a sudden was like perfectly teed up for um, for 5G. And so it's also just like a really dynamic company with an amazing culture um, and value proposition. And so those are two where um, you know we're, we're crossed over, and those are those are pretty rare, but it's a really good question. On, on we do um, you know once in a while uh, we'll make kind of the intentional decision to to cross them over. Yeah, it feels like the ideal outcome where it starts as, you know, less than whatever, 1% or 150 basis point position, and then it evolves. The ideal outcome, right, if you guys are right on your prediction there? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, and we will, um, since we cap our optionality tail at 150 basis points, like there are some cases where the stock like would move in, you know, if we just like let it express itself, but we'll actually trim the position every time it gets to 150 basis points, like the classic okay. example of... Um, of that is, is Tesla, which we owned, um, you know, since the fund went live in, in early 2020. Um, and that, that was up, you know, eight or nine X or whatever it was um, last year, but we kind of like consistently trimmed it because our, our view actually, I mean, maybe the range of outcomes on Tesla had narrowed on the margin, but like, I don't think it's actually a given that they're going to be, um, you know, the, the leader in the EV market yet, or, or like what the composition of the automotive market will look like in, you know, 10 years. And so that's one where um, they certainly executed well and like the stock um, increased dramatically, but we didn't, um, cross it over. We just kind of trim that and keep it, you know, at the top end of optionality instead of um, bringing it into the resilient head of the portfolio. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Where if you still view it as optionality, you can't just force it. And you're like, well, it turned into the three percent position, you know. But if you still view it, you got to kind of that objective view, like, yeah, you know, the outcome's still here, a little risky, right? We gotta, we gotta. I don't know. It's kind of tough to weigh. But how many portfolio companies do you guys have? Yeah, so we we own like between fifty and sixty stocks, and so I, I should have brought this up when we were kind of walking through the framework. So we'll have like fifteen to twenty resilient positions, and um, you know thirty to forty optionality positions is, is like usually our our sweet spot. And so that'll that'll flex. Honestly, the composition of the portfolio will flex a little bit just with like market conditions and like optionality was very expensive coming into this year. If you look at um, a lot of growth stocks and e-commerce and SaaS stocks, they're trading at um, you know pretty expensive valuations. And so um, there are certain times where that will just kind of naturally, um, naturally flex. Okay. And, okay. So on the optionality side, when you're picking companies for that sort of end of it, um, what do you look for? Cause I, I know it's easy for investors, I think to sometimes say like, it's a buzzword, well, right? Like there's, it's got plenty of optionality, like anything can happen, but that's not always, I guess, uh, sometimes that's a bad thing or not as good as you might imagine. Um, so what do you look for? Yeah. I mean, the, the main thing we look for is this idea of asymmetry where like we literally are looking for stocks that can be up like three, you know, five, 10 X. And so the, the common thread, this isn't like universal across the optionality part of the portfolio, but um, commonly it's, it's a very large market and um, with relatively sleepy incumbents and a new business model that is, um, you know, doing something a different way. And so, you know, some examples would be like Zillow and Redfin and, um, you know, in the real estate market. And this is a good example of companies that are also willing to experiment and like take on, like move into iBuying where they're actually like buying and selling homes, which is a, a very immature market with the unit economics. I mean, I would argue probably not even totally proven yet, um, but willingness to, to go out there and experiment. And actually we call it stacking on a new S curve where it's maybe they, um, you can move into an adjacent business line and actually, you know, bring on, um, a growth business that we hadn't even honestly forecast, you know, three or five years ago. That's another reason we try to not predict the future is like really dynamic companies will generally surprise you with the way that they innovate. And so you don't want to say this company has like, you know, X number of like revenue power, earnings power um, in, in five years, because you might be um, too low on that number. But it's really 
dynamic company. Um, so other ones would be, I, mean, I mentioned Tesla is a classic optionality position uh, or something like Peloton, um, you know, is another one. It's, it's not all just like internet platforms, um, but that, that does seem to be um, a pretty, a pretty good place for us to fish. And then there are also, there are companies that we just really think are um, dynamic and, and becoming platform-like, but they could just be too expensive to own in the head of the portfolio. So we generally will be, I mean, valuation is actually the last thing we look at um, in our process, but um, something like an Audien, which is an amazingly dynamic company, um, and is incredible, has an incredible business model, especially for, for its scale. Um, but we also have to be realistic that the, the valuation is, is stretched on any sort of, even if going out, you know, multiple years on any sort of um, metric we would look at. Um, and so that, that's another one where um, Okta would be another one, which is an identity management platform that we've owned for a long time, um, where we just have honestly have never gotten that. If it ever, you know, pulled back to seven times sales, it's like a 20 times sales multiple. So that seems unlikely, you know, you could make it resilient if you ever get the shot. Um, but so we'll... Um, We'll run kind of the more expensive stocks um, in the optionality tail of portfolio um, as well, and just you know, if you ever get the chance, then you you can cross them over. Okay. And does market cap or size uh, matter at all when it comes to these optionality bets? I know a lot of people kind of just worry about you know the law of large numbers and stuff like that. Does that come into play, or is it really each situation is is unique? Yeah, it, it actually. Um, surpri- I was actually thinking about this. Surprisingly. We're, we're pretty open to owning like, you know, $100 billion plus market caps in the optionality tail, um, like something like Square. I mean, Audien is another one I mentioned or Shopify, um, where the range of outcomes is still relatively wide, maybe narrowing. And honestly, the valuations um, are, are tough to argue that they're like resilient positions. And w- one of the ways we think about resilient positions is if the stock declined 30%, would be, we'd be like salivating to add to it. And, you know, some of these valuations, honestly, maybe there's more room than 30% um, to fall. And so um, there are, I think we generally, our, our sweet spot is kind of like in the 20 to you know $30 billion range for, for optionality, but we're, we're perfectly willing to, to go up, um, you know, hundred billion plus. And, and part of that really is just because of the, you have to be looking at the, the TAM that you're looking at. If you're square and you're going after, um, you want to see like personal finances, your TAM, it could be trillions of dollars. Then I, I think that um, you can think about that differently than something that's further, you know, it could be hundred billion market cap because it's already, you know, further penetrated into its, into its addressable market. Does, I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but um do you guys care a lot about management? Does that start to weigh heavily on your optionality bets more than your resiliency bets? Just because there's so much that goes, you know, it really comes down to management to expand into yeah. new markets and stuff it, like yeah, that. Yeah, in a dynamic industry like that or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we do. I mean, there's like two ways to think about management. Like we don't spend a ton of time with management in terms of like getting their outlook on the business because um, we just generally, we, we, I've been lucky to meet with lots and lots of management teams during my career and management teams are generally more bullish on their business um, than we think they should be. And it's not because they're like bad people or anything. It's just genuinely like their, their job is to be bullish on their business. It's like, if you're the coach of the team, you think your team's probably going to like win the Super Bowl. you know, it's like everyone is, um, if you want to be kind of the cheerleader for your company, then you should be built bullish on your own business. Um, we, we do think a lot about culture. And so, I mean, one of the things we generally look for, I mean, founder, um, led companies generally, um, well, we like like we like to own them in the optionality tail or in the head of the portfolio when we get the chance. That's that's um, a little more rare, um, just because they tend to be so dynamic. And one of the things we also look for is um, companies that have 
uh, more of a decentralized approach to running the company where um, the company is really managed like a lot of small businesses that roll up into one company or, or the, the leader is willing to kind of push the responsibility of decision making down into like the more um, junior levels of the company because companies like that just tend to be more adaptable and more um, dynamic. And so that's something we've kind of studied over time. And so um, that's kind of our take on, on management. We, like, we think culture is incredibly important and the ability to um, you know, take risk and, and fail quickly is, is a huge part of um, you know, being part of a dynamic growth company. And so I, I, do, I do think it matters. We just don't like ask them what they think their growth rate is going to be in 2022 or something like that, because it doesn't really matter that much. And um, we think that the odds of being right aren't any, you know, probably aren't any um, higher than than our opinion or a sell side analyst or, or whoever it would be. Another quote I saw from your guys' paper was uh, a barrier or moat today becomes a vulnerability tomorrow. And this kind of is, this is something where if you're sort of traditional school of value, it kind of is counterintuitive or counter to what you typically think. So I guess, why do you see it that way? Um, and then are there any exceptions? Because so many people are convinced, including ourselves, to look for moats when investing, look for those big competitive advantages. Yeah, this is like a little bit of our cynical take on like Porter's Five Forces, which you know a lot of people use as a framework for evaluating competitive advantage. And our, and our basic thing, if you look at Porter's Five Forces, like two of the five forces are um, it's kind of like the power struggle between you know your suppliers and your customers and so our cynical take a little bit is like the like legacy view of competitive advantage like especially looking at like more like industrial age businesses versus digital businesses is um, in in Porter's five forces like you're really trying to set up the company to extract more economic value than like your other con- other constituencies like your suppliers or your customers and when we think just generally in um, yeah, more more in like the digital age where the pace of disruption is really accelerating, um, and you know any company that's kind of like resting on their laurels or on a legacy mode and like printing fat margins should be thinking about Jeff Bezos, you know the classic quote from Amazon, um, you know your margin is my opportunity. And so um, I also just think that, that the world is so much more transparent than it used to be. And so there are there are exceptions. Like I think anyone who's kind of built um, we don't use the term modes, but um, kind of like a a flywheel platform like business in the digital age. Um, I think I think that's like an exception, I would say, to um, our, our take on moats or competitive advantage. But we really try to think more about like who's who's adaptable and who's creating more value than they take than like who has a moat of like whether it's a patent portfolio or just they've like, you know, kind of position themselves in the industry to extract more value um, than, than everyone else. I think that that's a little bit of a um, it's just not, not the way we look at the world. It's not for everyone, but that that's kind of worked for us. Okay. Uh, we we want to talk semiconductors as well. Uh, I'm glad you said you have a decade of experience. That's that's fantastic. We didn't know exactly, so that's good to know. Uh, but before we get to that, we have to take a quick break. All right, right. Uh, but we'll get to that on the second half. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link and now all your computer can play is red color red color where are you (sighs) all blocked thanks to advanced security included with cox panoramic wi-fi advanced security must be enabled in the panoramic wi-fi app restrictions apply okay welcome back in next up we're talking semiconductors um this is something that if you we looked at the nzs sort of 13f online and when you look at the companies a lot of them are chip-related sort of semiconductor companies. Uh, 
So I guess at a high level, why is NCS sort of taking such a big bet on the semiconductor space? Um, yeah, uh, why semiconductors? Yeah, I mean, it's, so we've had um, about a third of the portfolio in, in semis, um, give or take, and kind of like the broader semi ecosystem since inception. Like sometimes we honestly look at that and we think we're crazy. And sometimes we think it's like crazy low and it should be you know, like 40% or 50%. Why not? So um, there, there are a few things that go into our thinking on the chip industry. I mean, the, the overall like thesis is just that semiconductors are having a renaissance um, and really are like pushing into every part of the economy. And so I think a lot of people, I mean, honestly, I think like three or four years ago, no one even like thought about chips and no one, a lot of people like didn't even know really what a semiconductor was. And that was like semis were Apple's problem or Cisco's problem or kind of like just a kind of like something relegated to like IT and IT hardware. And now, um, I mean, all of the, a lot of the most important technology trends over the next um, 10 years are like fundamentally enabled by advances in semiconductors, whether it's the rise of the cloud, the rise of artificial intelligence, um, the rise of 5G. Um, I mean, the, the, the term like the internet of things or just the idea of everything being smart and connected. And it's not just, I think you're seeing this obviously with the chip shortage now. Um, I mean, like the, the shortages in automotive have been um, catching all the headlines with like everyone, you can't buy an F-150 because Ford can't get chips. Um, but it's also someone like Intuitive Surgical who's building like an incredible platform for kind of the future of surgery. I mean, they, they reported earnings this week and they're worried about getting semiconductors. And that's another great example of, of like, a technology that's fundamentally impacting the way um, you know something is done, and going back to our discussion on TAMs is a, is a massive TAM, um, and you know you can't do you can't you know create a Da Vinci robotic surgery system um, without semiconductors. So um, that, that that's kind of like the first point is just that there's this this renaissance of you know anything that isn't um, digital now will become digital in the economy in the next five to 10 years and semiconductors are kind of like the support layer of that. Like we kind of like to say that like software is eating the world, but semiconductor and everyone knows that, but semiconductors are like the unsung hero of, of the tech industry. Um, and then an another point I would make is, is just like the business models and semiconductors. We can talk about how they fit into our portfolio. Like the industry has really structurally changed over the last five to 10 years where this used to be like a very cyclical, very high incremental margins. Um, companies would lose money, you know, with the trough of the cycle or have to raise capital. Um, and it, it was like a very difficult place to invest. Like when I started covering semis um, earlier in my career, people were like, if you can learn how to make money in semis, you can make money anywhere. Cause this is like a tough industry to make money in. Um, and now it really, if you look at, um, we, we went through a really difficult down cycle um, with uh, like starting in kind of 2018 with the um, with the trade wars and and the Huawei um, ban and that kind of thing, and the industry was like incredibly profitable. Like we always use this example, but um, Texas Instruments. Um, at the trough of this last down cycle was as profitable as Microsoft, which is the most profitable, or which is obviously the largest software company in the world. And so just like the idea that this, that semis are like this kind of, you know, cyclical um, area where, where the business models are, are tough and it's a hard place to make money, I think it has kind of changed. It really like a lot of high quality chip companies are in the top decile in terms of, um, you know, in terms of free cash flow generation or profitability or anything like that. And so um, but those are the two main things. It's also like we're, we're running a diversified global growth fund and we compare semiconductors to industrials or other kind of parts of the market. And uh, we just think they're a lot more attractive if you look at um, the, the growth outlook, the quality of the businesses, the quality of the management teams. Um, and so that's kind of how we've, we've honed in on, um, on semiconductors so much is, is just this like rising resilience of the business and or the businesses and the, the overall like relevance of the industry is um, it's honestly just, it's incredibly dynamic. Like the industry has been around for you know 60 plus years. And I would say it's more exciting now than it's ever been. Right. And a lot of people, us included, you kind of look at semiconductors and you just see it's like a black box. You don't know any of the nuances 
so for generalists like us, what are the few basic things maybe investors should know about the semiconductor industry? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's like a $500 billion industry. I think people tend to paint it with a broad brush. And like, I think it is important to think about like the subtleties within the industry. I mean, maybe one example would be, um, I mean, there are like different cycles within the semi-industry. Like if you're looking at a company like Texas Instruments, I mean, about, about two thirds of their profits are coming from like the industrial and the automotive markets versus if you look at NVIDIA, which is another, you know, vis really visible large cap in the space, they don't do almost anything and they do some in automotive, but like their business is really driven by gaming and the data center. And so um, I, I think just like trying to take a step back and, and understand what companies do at the individual company level, I think is probably, um, you know, the, more, the most important thing. And then I, I would just say, I mean, it's hard to get all the subtleties of the industry without like following it for a long time. Um, but, but I would just say, pay attention to the business models and pay attention to who is like really structurally profitable um, and has shown an ability to, to do that over time um, and shown an ability to, to kind of like weather a down cycle because one of my frustrations seeing people that haven't um, invested in, in semiconductors for, for a long time and don't have kind of the history is like, the semi-cycle is like this like boogeyman that's going to come like spoil the party and like all of a sudden people even right now people are worried about um the semi-cycle like yet again I, and I just feel like that misses the forest for the trees because the industry has become so dynamic um you know there's been multiple cycles over the last 10 years but the the semiconductor index the socks is up like 8x over that time and so if you can just kind of like hold buy amazing companies and own them through the cycle and not get shaken out at the bottom of the cycle like one of the great things about semiconductors is like i think it's a pretty easy thing to um, predict that, you know, we call this a broad prediction again, like five to 10 years from now, there'll be more chips consumed in the world than there were um, this year. And it might vary with cycles a little bit, but like the demand is, is going to snap back. It's not like it's like a commodity where it's going to like oil or copper or something where it can go into like a five year down cycle and you have no idea when it's going to come back. Like corrections in semis are usually short and painful, but, but they are short because the industry needs chips. And so um, I, I would say if you're like looking at the space, just, just try to, um, you know, look through the cycles and focus on, um, on, on the long term and on the quality of the business models. Did you guys, did you guys intentionally frame it as sort of this bet on the industry as a whole, or are you just kind of looking at each individual business and saying like, wow, we think this is poised for sort of a bright future. And then after a while you had kind of piled together a 30 year portfolio in semis. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It, it, it has actually was kind of a bottoms up process that we, I mean, one of the cool things about starting from scratch is we really got to build a portfolio from scratch with no like legacy from um, our, our, you know, previous investing careers. And so it was just, um, just a bottoms up process that we kind of went through every stock we wanted to own and semi land and it turned out and also fit them into our, our framework of well, what's resilient, what's optional um, and, and position sizing. And it just ended up being a third of the portfolio. And so we do kind of monitor that. Um, and I think that um, we probably don't want it to get too high just for kind of like risk management purposes. And it's also, it's not all um, chips, I should say. Like we would put like Cadence Design Systems in there, which is just really a software company that feeds into the semi-industry. Um, and like semi-equipment is different than just pure semiconductors and that kind of thing. So, um, but that, that, that is um, a good question. It really was, was more bottoms up than anything else. Uh, do you think, uh, I don't know if this is a question that would, take an hour to explain, but can you explain maybe the semiconductor supply chain at all? Because uh, I know that is something people get really confused about. I, I know you just mentioned like the, um, I forget what you even said, the software uh, for that, that one company, I forget what its name is, but could you explain the supply chain a little bit? Because I know people look at like Intel, NVIDIA, TSMC, and they don't really know how everyone fits together. Yeah, I can, I can do that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can do this in like five minutes. So, um, 
the, the, I guess the first example, I'll, I'll just do it through an example. I think that's the easiest way to get it. And so um, the like the big pocket of the industry that you'd hear the most about are chip designers. And so that's companies like um, like pure chip companies like an NVIDIA or a Qualcomm or an AMD, and they actually design the chips. So they've got thousands of engineers designing chips. And so they use software um, to design those chips. It's like a CAD um, you know, layout program, like similar to what Autodesk in, in um, you know, in AEC and in, in architecture, except this is to build a chip instead of a house. And so there are two companies that do that. That's Cadence Design Systems and Synopsis. And so if you're an engineer at, at Apple or NVIDIA or anywhere, you like go into work and you sit at your desk every day and you like live in like Cadence or Synopsis software. And so um, most chip designers are called fabulous chip companies. And so um, that would be someone like an NVIDIA where they actually don't manufacture the chip themselves. They outsource that to TSMC primarily. They would also outsource the, the production of the chip to um, Samsung, who's kind of like the second source in the industry. Um, they are generally designing on an architecture. And so there are multiple architectures in the industry. ARM is like the really visible one that um, is in your smartphone or in your iPad. And um, Apple has adopted that into their M1 chip. So ARM, this is kind of a long-winded way to go through all this, but ARM is um, a licensing company. So they don't actually build um, chips. All they do is license their, their architecture to companies like, um, like Apple or Qualcomm. Um, and then the other architectures would be something like um, x86, which is the Intel, um, kind of like the legacy Intel architecture where a lot of the PCs and server chips are built. Um, and then the other ones would be like their GPUs, which are um, graphics processing units, which we would see from NVIDIA or AMD. And those are chips that um, were initially built for gaming, but now actually they're really pushing into the data center with, it just turns out that artificial intelligence is actually like built to run on, on GPUs and NVIDIA was amaz amazingly strategic to like pivot the business to go from just being a gaming company to supporting AI. Um, and so that, that's like the basically the basic overview, if that all makes sense on, um, and I, I guess the, the other steps in that, just uh, one, one last quick thing is, um, so TSMC and Samsung actually build the chips. And so, um, they have to buy equipment from um, the semi-equipment suppliers, which would be some companies like ASML, um, LAM Research, KLA 10 Core, Applied Materials, and Tokyo Electron. They're basically five major um, equipment suppliers. And so that's kind of how like digital chips work. And so if you can think about digital chips versus analog chips, I think I can do like two more minutes of this and this will be the full review of the industry oh, in seven minutes. Um, so analog chips are, so digital chips do computing functions. Like they think in zeros and ones and that's like um, anything from the $20 chip that goes in your smartphone to the $200 chip that goes into your laptop. It's like a, you know, a $2,000 chip that can be in a data center. And so that's where like real like processing and like decision-making is done. And then there's another part of the industry uh, which is called analog. And that's where you would see like um, Texas Instruments, analog devices, microchip and companies like that. And so um, those companies actually take like the physical world does not think in zeros and ones. And so what you actually have to do is take analog chips. They will take like a temperature reading or a signal, like a wireless signal that would go into your phone. And they'll actually take that and they'll process it into a digital signal to allow a processor to um, like compute on it basically. And so um, the difference between like digital and analog is, is analog chips generally um, sell for about 30 cents a chip. And so it's very different than like a, you know, a, a digital chip thing that can cost like tens or hundreds or thousands of dollars. Um, and so the, um, the analog guys tend to play more in like automotive and industrial when you think of like the chips that go into your coffee maker or the chips that go into a tractor or the chips that go into, I mean, they go into everything, your Nest thermostat, your, um, your smart locks in your car, your, your key fob, like they're, they're just like, they'll do your windshield wipers, you know, with your, um, when you like flick the thing in your car to turn your wipers on. So that's, um, that's like what analog and microcontrollers can do. And so that, I guess that's, 
kind of like the the few minutes around the tech supply chain or the semi supply chain, if that um, if any of that makes sense, or hopefully that that's a decent overview. No, I think I think that clears I think that clears up yeah some of the confusion people have because all the names get thrown around. I mean, it's obviously more nuanced than that, but. And there's, I guess, one, one thing I'll, I'll add really quickly is there the other business model is called an IDM, which is an integrated device manufacturer. And that's the one like Intel, where they right. still design the chips and they own their own factories. And so that's, there are very few companies that do this now um, because building factories is so expensive, especially for digital chips. But um, that, that is a different business model compared to what you would call a fabulous company like NVIDIA, where they, they outsource their uh, manufacturing. What, why, what makes, I, ever, I always hear people talk about ASML. So what makes ASML so valuable in that process or in, in that chain, I guess? Yeah, so ASML is, um, is really the company that's like driving Moore's Law right now. And so if you hear like TSMC talking about like five nanometer and that's going to go to three nanometer and these are like, this is like incredibly complex stuff. ASML is the only company in the world that can actually, um, what they do is they shine light through a photo mask, which is kind of like the sense of the chip onto a wafer. And so they're actually, they're printing that like that feature that is the kind of like the three nanometer feature. And so um, it's, it's just like this crazy artifact of, um, of history and innovation that they were the only company in the world that was able to kind of like do the amount of investment that was needed and honestly stay close enough to Intel and Samsung and TSMC to um, invest enough to come out with kind of like the next generation of called, they're called lithography systems that do this, um, that kind of print the, the feature on the wafer. Um, and so they used to have a competitor, which was Nikon, the, the Japanese company and Nikon kind of like bowed out of the competition because it was just too, it was too freaking hard. Um, and so um, that's what's made ASML so strategic is like, there's like one company in the world that is basically powering Moore's law right now. Um, and so um, you're seeing, I mean, actually they reported earnings this week and they're, like sold out of their next generation of machines because all of a sudden everyone needs, you know, more chips for, for everything, for the data center, for gaming, I mean, for automotive market. And, um, you know, they need ASML equipment to be able to keep pushing down Moore's law. And so it's, it's the only kind of pocket of semi equipment where it's like a pure monopoly. Like there are other, there are other um, companies that are like really strong in certain pockets of, um, of semi equipment, but um, lithography is the only part of it where it's, it's like the most strategic because you're printing the, the feature size and also, um, it's, it's literally a monopoly. Like they've got, um, of, of kind of like leading edge applications. They have 100% share and they realistically will not have a competitor for the next, um, until China comes out with one in, in 20 years or whenever that will be. Right. And then does that come from patents or does that come from just, it would take 5 billion or $10 billion or a thousand engineers to, um, catch up? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of both. I mean, it's, it is just like an example of, I mean, I think it's like one of the crowning achievements of like humankind. It's kind of like you can give someone a ton of capital um, and and some smart people, but can they like, you know, put a, like a Mars rover on Mars or can you like build a commercial aircraft or something like if you look at like really the toughest engineering problems we've ever solved. Um, and what's unique about ASML, um, if you actually go back to 20, I think it was 2012, they actually got an investment from all their big customers like Intel, Samsung and TSMC um, collectively bought about a quarter of ASML. And so they actually like collaborated for like six or seven years to roll out um, EUV systems, which is the next generation of equipment. These are like the systems that cost $200 million right now. Um, and so that's like something you can't really replicate is like this collaboration with like the leaders in the space that are also driving Moore's law. And so, I mean, I, I think if ASML like gave their book of patents to another company with like $50 billion, it would still take that company, um, you know, probably 15 or 20 years to replicate what they've done just because 
you just thought you would like had to collaborate with your customers and solve all these like crazy engineering problems along the way to um, you know get to the point where we're again like brushing up against the laws of physics to um, you know print the the feature size at five nanometer and five nanometer and, and three nanometer. So, um, but that, that's just kind of the way they've gotten to um, to where they are. So yeah, that makes sense. Fascinating. I, I imagine that fits more into the resiliency framework than optionality. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great example because honestly, it's not like a, um, the stock is always optically expensive, um, but it is, it's just like a resilient business. And they um, have this like this incredible runway because this EUV product cycle that they're in is going to last for six or seven years and they've got no competition. And so um, it's, again, we kind of call it like a broad prediction. Like as long as the world needs more like the digital chips, which we think they will, then I think, um, we, I think ASML will do well. And then you also have these kind of like knock-on effects now of we're bringing... Um, we're diversifying the global supply chain, right? And so we're bringing more yeah. uh, manufacturing onshore in the U.S. And so um, that's like this additional revenue stream that we wouldn't have predicted, you know, three years ago. Right. That leads right into our next question. Thoughts on, uh, and this is the big issue that, you know, it's talked about on the front page of the newspaper, uh, TSMC versus Intel. What, you know, led to TMC winning, TSMC winning? Uh, and do you think, you know, Intel's kind of announced that they're trying to fight back? How do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, TSMC is kind of like a classic um, power law company, I would say, what really is like a company that gets the the flywheel going. And they, I mean, we kind of watched this develop over the last um, 12 years, but they really like hit their inflection when smartphones ramped up and like, especially Apple and the iPhone, like Apple was a huge customer for TSMC. Um, and the iPhone kind of like hit its stride, you know, in the beginning of, of last decade. And all of a sudden they just became um, just like bigger. They, they're the only pure play Foundry, first of all, I guess, at the leading edge, which matters. But then they also, um, they, they just kind of got the flywheel going where it's like they're bigger than all of their peers. They can you know, reinvest that more quickly. They're amazingly customer centric and they also have this ecosystem. And so when you're like the center of gravity, the whole ecosystem wants to be close to you. And that's like the software companies like Cadence and Synopsys or ARM, which is like the big, the big um, architecture. Like everyone wants to be close to TSMC to make sure that like the chips built on their kind of like IP and software can actually be manufactured the way that their customers want. And so um, it was like this company that just hit escape velocity. And then all of a sudden you kind of got to, you know, the end of last decade and they had um, like 90% share of like of leading edge um, chip manufacturing. And so I, I think it's just like a classic case study of, of um, you know, not really living in like the normal distribution of like standard deviation events. It's like, it's right. kind of more like the 80-20 rule and, and power laws where, um, you know, in digital businesses, usually one or two players, in this case, one player can extract, you know, almost all the profits. Um, and so then going back to, to Intel, it's, there, there, there are a few things. So Intel's actually tried to do this um, for a long time. So they um, probably in 2014 or 15, they, um, they announced they're going to work with a company, Altera, which was a, a public um, fabulous chip company. Um, and they, they actually moved from TSMC to Intel. And it was like really high profile. This was at the 14 nanometer node. Um, and Intel just botched it. Like they really, they, they never got the manufacturing right. And then they actually ended up acquiring Altera, I think in part to like kind of like sweep it under the rug that this founder relationship didn't work out. And the reason it's hard to replicate is because, I mean, I, I made this point already, but TSMC, is just amazingly customer centric. Um, like they really like know how to do customer service and how to take a customer's design and get it into the fab and get it manufactured. And Intel honestly is like a little bit more of a stubborn organization. I think they have a hard time like listening to their customers and like doing it the way their customers want to do it versus the way Intel wants to do it. And so now, um, I mean, I think Pat Gelsinger as a new CEO of Intel has seen, I mean, there is a need for like more foundry capacity in the US, like talking about, um, the way the industry has evolved, like most leading edge chips, almost all of them are built in Taiwan. And it's like crazy that like the chips and like a, 
like an F-35 strike fighter are built in Taiwan, both in case we like have some sort of a conflict with China, but also just because there are like, I mean, there was an earthquake off the coast of Taiwan, I think last week. And so it's like, you can't just have everything being built in one place. I think everyone's kind of realized that. And so- you want some, um, uh, redundancy as an engineer, right? Yes, so yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like the only strategic industry where like everything in the world is built in one place. It's like the automotive industry doesn't like build all the cars in like one ge geography, you know, obviously because it's, it's more expensive to transport them than, than chips are. But still, it's like you, the redundancy is exactly right. Um, but so I think Pat Elzinger realizes that um, this is kind of Intel's chance to like step in and fill a need and try to be a foundry to, um, especially to US companies and like they're reaching out to the automotive companies and things like that. Um, I think their ability to do this and compete head to head with TSMC at the leading edge, um, I, I think the odds of them being successful are very, very low just because first of all, Intel's technology is already two years behind TSMC's. Um, and I don't really see that gap closing because TSMC is moving extremely quickly and um, they haven't executed as well. And so if you're if you're like Apple and you, you're debating whether or not you wanna work with Intel or not, like you already have the best technology at TSMC and they're the most customer centric and they, they actually are building fabs here in the US now. And so the only reason I think that we would work, work with Intel is if um, it's something that needs to be built on U.S. soil, like for, um, and, and it's like a little more like lagging edge, like company uh, technology that's maybe four or five years old. And so I think that's where Intel is probably going to kind of step in. And they, I mean, automotive is a great example where like they don't use like the really bleeding edge technology because um, automotive parts like can't fail. You know, it's like zero failures per, per million um, because if you're a part and you're, um, you know, and if your chip in your car fails, it's very different than your chip in your smartphone failing in terms of the ramifications of that, right? And so um, I think that's where Intel has a chance of being really successful. And so um, that is actually a really profitable business, but and that's that's not gonna be that painful for TSMC. I think there's like plenty of foundry revenue to go around given like the magnitude of the shortages we're seeing now in, in, in chips. And so um, that, that's kind of my take on it is I don't think Intel takes on TSMC head on at the very leading edge. I think people who think they can, I think probably don't understand all the subtleties of it. But that doesn't mean they can't play a role in it. And I think like Intel has kind of flirted with this business over time, but like they're obviously really serious about it now. And this is kind of going to be a huge part of Pat Gelsinger's um, strategic focus. This was on their earnings call last night is, is engaging with as many foundry customers as possible and putting 20 billion worth of CapEx behind it. And like being like, like we're here for real this time. It's not just um, us flirting with like two or three customers kind of thing. Right. So, so or go ahead, Ryan. So you said they're more customer centric. Who are those customers? You mentioned Apple for TSMC, but is Nvidia it like- too. Is NVIDIA yeah. and AMD, are those like customers as well? Yeah, yeah. So it's basically the top. Um, I mean, most of the biggest, I mean, ironically, Intel is actually one of the biggest customers because Intel actually outsources a lot of their manufacturing. But it is, it's like the biggest chip companies in the world that don't own their own fabs. Um, so all the biggest fabless companies all rely on TSMC. So that would be, um, I mean, Apple is the biggest customer. Actually, Huawei was a big customer, but they can't build there anymore but, um, because of geopolitical reasons. But yeah, you go down the list. It's like um, NVIDIA, AMD. Qualcomm, MediaTek, which is in Taiwan, which is actually a huge maker of, of smartphone and kind of like smart home chips. Um, and then the other big players now are Google, which honestly is a really big chip business, but they're, they make, it's called the TPU, which is their kind of like AI processor for, um, for, for the cloud. And they actually announced this week, they just um, came up with their own chip for, um, for YouTube actually for um, video compression. And then same thing with Amazon. Amazon is doing a lot of their own chips now. And so the, the big cloud guys are increasingly becoming really important customers for, um, for TSMC, which is like, it was, it's a big change and kind of speaks, I would say to the overall like renaissance in the industry that this stuff is so strategic that they feel like they need to do it in-house versus relying on um, on Intel or NVIDIA or whoever, whoever to um, to do it. Well, it's interesting, a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts. Um, I think that's all the questions I have on Sammy. Okay, wrap up questions. Uh, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? 
Um, yeah, one that one that we I don't know if I disagree with it, but one 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 saying that we or one term we actually don't use at NZS is we don't use the term conviction, and so um, which is kind of funny because like in my previous life um, at a big long only like you, part of the job is saying this is my highest conviction idea, right? And so the reason we don't use the term conviction is we try to remove as much bias from possible as, as move as much bias as possible from our investing investing decisions, and um, I feel like if you come out and say this is my highest conviction idea, like you will automatically anchor to that statement, whether you kind of subconsciously know it or not, or consciously know it or not. Um, and so I think it just makes it harder to, um, to change your mind. And I think we all try to be flexible and um, hold our ideas relatively loosely and be open to change. And then conversely, um, you can actually have a low conviction idea that has like huge asymmetry. And you can say like, hey, I think like, like unity is a relatively low conviction idea, but like there's a scenario where like the metaverse is like this huge thing and um, they're kind of the driver of it. And I don't know if it's gonna happen or not, but it could be a huge stock. And so I, I feel like that's that's the flip side of it is like not everything has to be high conviction or low conviction. And so that's just a term that we um, we don't use. All right, and then the last one we have, and I guess, yeah, uh, what's one piece of advice you have for anyone considering a career in investing besides not starting out uh, during a financial crisis? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think just investing um, your own capital and like studying the markets is is kind of the obvious one. And I, I was in the, in the position to interview a lot of people um, in my my last role, and I would say that was like the only disqualifier I ever had in any sort of interview is if I was interviewing someone for kind of more of a junior role, and they um, they didn't show like a passion for investing and they didn't already invest their own money, then um, I, I think that's that's kind of a deal breaker. I, I think you can learn so much from just buying stock and like five to 10 companies. And now they're the, the ways to generate ideas. Like there's so much out there on Twitter and on YouTube, Reddit, like the, the ways to go out and find interesting ideas. They're, they're just like endless now. And so um, if you can come up with a few hundred bucks and, and, and buy and hold them, like don't trade them and try to study the companies and like go through their quarterly earnings and, and see like what's working and what's not and why you think the stock is moving in one direction or the other, um, I think is a, is a really good exercise. And even if you don't honestly can't come up with the capital, just like run a uh, Excel spreadsheet and do a paper portfolio, I, th I think is a good way to learn. And then like the life hack I'll, I'll um, share from that is if you own 10 stocks, um, certainly like two or three of them are gonna end up being good stocks. And so like, if you have an interview someday, you can say, hey, I bought Chipotle in 2020 because you know I thought it was a cool company. And so you'll always have stock stories and like some invite insight to share um, and so, unless you're like extremely unlucky and like zero out of 10 end up working, you're always going to have um, something to talk about. And I think that's, um, it's actually just like a really clever way to have a good idea to bring it in, into a uh, job interview potentially. No, that's okay. definitely correct. That's, that is correct. All right. Uh, that's all the questions we have. So thank you for joining us, John. Hey, thanks for having me guys. All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to John Bathgate for coming on. Uh, enjoyed it a lot. But next we have our show notes and I'm going first. We kind of go back and forth. If you remember from last time, uh, the WeWork documentary came out. We watched it together. It was on Hulu. Memories. It was uh, great. Yeah. I remember about well, it's two years ago now that uh, that saga was it was fantastic. I'm so glad they made a documentary about it. Um, if you haven't seen it, I recommend go get the Hulu free trial, whatever they have, make up a fake email, just go watch it. It's great. Uh, some of my favorite parts, their executive team, I don't even know if it was the executive team, but vice, vice presidents, vice, vice presidents yeah. were all called CWOs. That was new. Uh, yeah, new. They put we in front of everything, uh, which is maybe a red flag when you're looking at some businesses, if they just put, you know, something in front of ordinary names. Uh, <laughs> When someone asks them what's the goal, 
uh, Adam Newman said, I want to elevate the world's consciousness. Adam was a bit of a character. A bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, the The thing is, you could see from the evolution at the start, he just seemed preppy, but at the end, he just kind of looked like an alcoholic kind of going crazy at the end of like a 3 a.m. party night. Uh, you're just kind of his, you know, yeah. we're going to elevate the world's consciousness. He seemed constantly like drunk and just partying um, and then convincing people to raise billions of dollars. Yeah. it. At first, I kind of felt like he was maybe a little naive and just kind of wanted to like have a fun company. Uh, yeah. and it was it was never malevolent, but then I think he just got it over his skis by the end. He was definitely malevolent at the end yeah. because of the jets, the trips, the drug use, funneling the alcohol, sort of the parties that the were VC just, money. Yeah, spending the VC money on like ten million dollar summer camps that are just giant parties. Yeah. Uh, some other stuff. Uh, the wife was allowed to elect the next CEO. I forgot about that. So uh, I guess his that's wife, flag. His, yeah. Adam Newman's wife. If a spouse, who technically is not a part of the company, is heavily involved, uh, that's a big red flag. Definitely. Um, look at those related party transactions. Hey, Buffett's son was on the board in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's Huge. true. Nepotism. Big red flag there. <laughs> uh, but do you think it – so Adam Newman the whole time, I thought, gosh, this guy's a little crazy. And then yeah. they tell that story of Masa's son saying, you're not crazy enough. Does this just – is that like the – it's so weird that Masa's son, like, because he's yeah. backed some people that are brilliant. I like Jack Ma. I really like uh, Soup Kim, the Coupon founder. Yeah. Um, but then uh, there's uh, people uh, like yeah. Adam Newman. Uh, well, mm, okay. A broken clock's right twice a day. Is that the saying? I don't know. If, yeah. you, if you're making that many investments, some of them are going to be right. and Some of them are going to be terrible. Good thing for SoftBank, though, that they didn't make that $16 billion, like, 40% takeover. Remember that? Mm. Um, when the Saudi Investment Fund, I think it was the Saudi Arabian Investment Fund. Backed out. Yeah, who was the majority investor into the SoftBank Vision Fund, told SoftBank to back out. Um, and those are some people you listen to. Yeah. Um, they, they have a history of getting pretty <laughs> aggressive. I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, that, that part was fascinating as well. Yeah, and this, I, I think this documentary just shows the value of being actually cash flow positive, especially for some of these young companies because as soon as the funding dried up, it was like the whole party stopped. Yep. And they were all banking on that next round of funding. I mean, there were some jokes even made there. It's like, where are you going to get the money? It's like, uh, Masa-san. And it's like, yeah. they're like, guys, if we can just make this next round of funding come in, the parties will keep going. I and think, then it didn't come. Yeah, what were they? They were probably going to raise like five, six billion on the IPO. I think that's what the numbers were. When that went out the door, the valuation just cratered, I think, over the next six months. What did it go down to? Below like $5 billion. And now it's worth around that same amount, up from where was it like $50 billion? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, just a fascinating documentary. Uh, kind of a fascinating story, honestly. I would not be surprised if Adam Newman, if we hear about him again. He's definitely trying to start some new cults, for sure. I think that's the other part that we didn't hit on, is the fact that they really made it like a cult, but oh, out there. Remember, the, 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 the big thing of that was the residential play. The We Live? Yeah, when they had the anecdote from the guy that went there, and he was like, I would bring friends over, and they'd be like, nah, yeah, I'm never coming back here again. And then he's like, I left, and I realized that it's like this living in a dorm that's way too close yeah. for like Adults. permanent residence. For 30-year-olds. At first, you're like, huh, that's kind of fun. 
you know, yeah. meet some, you meet some mates, maybe potentially. Sort of brainwashed. Yeah, and he kind of realized that they they had some cultish behavior. Um, yeah, he was a you know he was a prophet like figure. It was weird. Anyway, fascinating documentary. You, and everyone should go watch it. I think there's a new one. Uh, there's one coming out kind of soon where Jennifer Lawrence plays uh, Elizabeth Holmes in Black, Bad Blood. Yeah, that one. I'm looking forward to that one. Different, but uh, quite similar to WeWork. Less of a business model, more of a fraud. But yeah, <laughs> you know they never made any money. But <laughs> all right, uh, what's your next story? Okay. Oh, that's not a documentary. That's a movie. Sorry. Right. Uh, yeah, mine is the Apple Podcast subscription announcement. So they announced it this week at their big Apple event that they have every year. Um, they are going to allow shows to go behind a paywall if they want to and offer a subscription. This would either be for a whole show, partially exclusive content, or um, you know how some shows do that two-week period where it's delayed. I kind of like that model a lot where if you really want to get the premium stuff, you get it first. But then the free users also get it two weeks later. Uh, either way, not sure what the pricing options are. I assume it's pretty flexible. Uh, but Apple will take a 30% cut of the subscriptions in the first year and 15% thereafter. Very similar to what they run on the App Store. So kind of expected there. Only question I have, seems like a good idea. It's fine to give people the option to do this, right? But can yeah. something like this go mainstream in an industry that has so much supply? Like little shows like us. It See, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, basically, they're not saying that you have to go behind the paywall. Yeah. Right. So it, it's pretty much a pointless announcement, honestly, because you have the ability to go behind the paywall, but you'd have to do it. Like, if you don't go behind a, let's say you choose to go behind a paywall on Apple and people don't want to pay for it and they can, and you're not exclusive to Apple, people can go access it on Spotify. Well, you just don't release it on Spotify. Right, but do people want to mortgage a lot or uh, sort of uh, alienate oh, so yeah, part of a, their audience? I mean, it's a risk reward, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. It just didn't seem obviously Spotify is rolling it out now too, or Ru- something rumored, like this. Rumored, um, yeah, I could see something like this going mainstream. But I honestly, since ads. since people can just skip through ads, I don't see the problem with ads right now. Well, they're gonna. Logically, they're going to make it so you can't skip once they get rid of this RSS feed stuff. Um, I'm just thinking of that as a Spotify, someone who knows the Spotify business model a lot. But the thing, you know, how like on YouTube it's unskippable. Yeah. It just feels like to me that this stuff, the podcast industry, there's millions of them out there. It feels a lot like YouTube where they tried to roll into premium stuff and some people use it where they go ad free stuff like that. But it's just the supplies there that, okay, there's like 10 different sports shows or there's 10 different shows on like a specific sports team. If one goes behind a paywall, it better be darn good yeah. compared to the one. And it seems like the advertising business model on podcasts is pretty lucrative if you can get it right. Yeah, I, I don't mind. I mean, maybe our listeners hate us for the ads. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah. I mean, we have a pretty loyal listener base, and it just feels kind of—it feels more risky or more harmful to the listeners to say you have to pay for it now. Yeah, yeah. And there's no harm to give people the option, but I do agree. And the the way it's monetized versus like a radio show or cable TV or even streaming ad-supported TV, it's okay. So like. It seems like typically you give up like two minutes of advertising for 30 minutes of a show. It, I mean, it's not a big give up at all. 
Oh, especially not when you can just skip right through them. I mean, some sure. Yeah, yes. Yeah, don't skip I mean, right through our ads. We got don't, great ads. Yeah, well, I think eventually they're going to make it so you can't. Um, that seems like a pretty easy fix to do uh, for like a, you know, a software development team to do that. Uh, who knows? Could be wrong on that. But yeah, yeah, especially if you can skip stuff. Some shows do like six ads. And that seems like you're kind of reaching the limit of like an hour long show. But I yeah. don't know. It, uh... I don't know. I mean, this it didn't seem like a huge announcement to me. No. I think the ability to offer subscriptions is good. I'm glad Apple didn't choose to like hardline it and say you like, like uh, you have to be exclusive if you want to do a subscription, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems like a feature though, and it's not going to be meaningful to Apple at all. No, I mean, it, it's nice that they're updating their podcast app for the first time in like. 10 years. That's good for users and creators, yeah. Yeah, but uh, sometimes they just announce this stuff and it's not that big. Mm-hmm. Like they announce this stuff all the time. Apple Card, Apple Arcade. Hey, Apple Card. Oh, Brady has one. Brady has one. <laughs> but the thing is, like, it's just a tiny take rate. You know, it's like. This might be my anecdotal evidence Apple Pay. So many people are using Apple Pay. Yeah, we, we knew that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's just kind of hidden, you know. They take a, they have a tiny take rate though. It's like almost as small as Mastercard or Visa. Mm. All right. Well, uh, anything else on that? Um, yeah, I was going to mention that Spotify and Facebook have a partnership now uh, that you can listen to shows embedded into the the Facebook feed while like you're that. scrolling and stuff like that. Uh, do you think this is meaningful at all? I only thing that I thought was meaningful is that. Uh, this is one of the only times Facebook has allowed advertising from someone else on Facebook because when Spotify has these shows played on there, a lot of the times it's going to be the advertising network that they're setting up, oh. which I thought was fascinating. Remember, Eck and Zuck are buddies. Boy, they're boys. Them, You've seen Snoop that Dogg. picture yes, of him yes. and Snoop Dogg. Yes. And, Those two and, and Snoop Dogg. And Sean Parker, the crew. That's quite the gang. So, I mean, this is just a little, you know, gift. From Zuck, if you will. <laughs> yeah, from the from the overlord. But it's interesting to think that Spotify and Apple are competitors. Apple and Facebook are starting to hate each other now. Or Facebook kind of is getting mad at them for kind of infringing and doing all that stuff. I don't really know the details. It's good. That. But that I'm, seems like I'm it's good. I'm all for this fight against Apple. Yeah, it seems like if Facebook is like, all right, we're going to partner with Spotify, that's that's fine for, uh, for Spotify's growth. But these partnerships, they always, not always, 90% of the time, you get excited about them, and then it's it's more oh. noise than news a yeah. lot of the time. I feel like most fans have, like, I don't think consumer habits change that often. And more more than likely, I'm just going to keep listening to podcasts the same way I always have. Yes. Uh, uh, inertia is important. All right. My next story is the housing boom. Uh, so Redfin reported this week that 45% of homes sold for more than their listing price. Ooh. Um, Interesting stat. I think that's the most they've ever witnessed, apparently. Um, who benefits from this the most? Lumber, obviously. We've seen yeah, there's the a price, shortage of that. The uh, value of lumber uh, the, skyrocket. The lum- yeah, the lumber uh, people on FinTwitter are having a party right now. For it's sure. Maybe my favorite click on FinTwit <laughs> is the lumber click. Yeah, they're, they're having their day. They yeah, I, I don't know. There's that uh, kind of weird mix of companies that own each other. Um, I forget the name. It's like Ballantine Strong and uh, Green First or something. Mm. You know, they all own each other. Uh, it's too confusing. I haven't looked into it, but yeah, they're they're doing well. Happy for them. Um, what yeah. do you think about home builders? Is this uh, sort yeah. of an industry worth looking into? I mean, supply is like 
for anyone that hasn't kept, I, I think real estate's probably the like the financial market that most people pay attention to. I figure. True. True. Um, do you think that this is just like this is the way it is now? Are people going to be worried about buying homes? Do you think there's going to be sort of would be home buyers kind of scared to get in because they think it's some top? Yeah, that's that's kind of a weird. The, the psycholo- psychological aspects of it can get weird. It seems like people get more aggressive the more prices get up because they get FOMO. They're like, oh, I'm going to miss out on this price. It's like with investing too. It kind of is confirming my priors that buying a home is something I don't want to do mm. uh, because... Got to build equity. <laughs> yeah, you got to build equity, man. You know what? I'm comfortable buying some, you know, building that Maratha, right, in, in our portfolio, but... I don't know. Home builders should be fine. It seems like commercial real. It's the same deal as that's what's been going on. Residential real estate. There's a lot of change going on right now. So yeah. that means that there needs to be a lot of things renovated and built. Infrastructure plan should help with this a lot if that gets passed. I mean, I don't know much about home builders. I know a lot of times they can lever up. I mean, residential REITs are obviously going to do fine. Not something I'm an expert in. Um, I do own, I guess, Boston Omaha, which has a lot of exposure to home builders. So I'm not unhappy with that I, I think i'm very happy with that in my, in my personal account right now yeah nothing nothing uh no no big takes though it's it's not something i know much about isn't it it feels strange though because everyone's like oh like uh you know every it feels like every homeowner is going through that process of like wow i could sell my house for so much and then yeah, they start to, to think like oh wait then i gotta buy one for so much yes uh so I don't. It's probably one of the biggest FOMO markets too, and I think oh, yeah. although now that there has been a housing bubble, it's like the classic take to be like, "Oh, housing prices are going up. It might be a bubble. I'm going to wait till it collapses to buy a house." Yeah, which is it's tough. Bad psycho. Bad uh, psychology. Yeah, it's I forget whatever you know. Classic thinking fast and slow thing there. I All don't right. know. I don't know. Next story. What do you have? Okay, this is a fun one. This would be more of a uh, kind of a hot water if we're doing the classic ones. Uh, this is a SPAC quote here. Uh, see what you think. Um, this is from, I believe, Altimeter Capital, who has a SPAC program going now. And he said, uh, I think it was the founder, but it's someone from there. Um, quote, we view SPACs as an open source API, unlocking access to the public markets. And then one of our favorite accounts is how I saw it. Uh, Jerry Capital quote tweeted it with FFS, which means you know for blank sick. Yeah, you can do. <laughs> you can use your magic. There could be. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But yeah, it seems the problem is I kind of like Altimeter. Uh, I like Brad Gersner, but I, think, good. I don't know, man. <laughs> SPAC and so the SPAC vehicle. I think is a good thing. We've we've had the same view on this. The SPAC vehicle is a good thing. The uh, availability or the ability to take uh, companies public without the proper due diligence is a bad thing. And I think a lot of that is going on here. Too much of a good thing? I don't know if they're even a good thing though anymore. I think I've changed my opinion on this. Um, What's the twenty percent? Look, I just the fees are just. It's just a lower percentage. Yeah. Okay. Twenty percent fee. Why not just IPO? You people are like they, they say this is the argument. Oh, it's too expensive to IPO. The the highest IPO fee is like seven percent. If you're a big company, it's like two three percent or whatever. Okay, let's do a spec. It's twenty percent. I mean, if they lower the fees, great. But right now, it just seems like a way for sponsors to get rich. 
and screw other investors. I mean, those warrants too. Like, it's yeah. it's bad. I don't know. What are some positives though? You think they could come out with this? Like, because here's kind of the scenario I'm thinking. There's if this flood of SPACs sustains itself over the next year and beyond, like. I think there's some ram. There's some things that could happen that people like you know some second order effects. I'm not sure exactly what there are, what they are, but what are some potential positives and negatives? More public companies. That's a positive. But what if? It's what pretty if much my only positive. But what if? What if, if, what if more than their fair share of frauds now? That sucks. That does suck. But those frauds would have been private anyway. So I, I yeah, whatever. Maybe they're gonna pull capital from retail investors, but. Let's say five percent of those SPACs are good companies that would have chosen to stay private. Uh, yeah, it's better. I mean, it's just you I just got to be able to filter through it. It is for. I mean, it's a overall. Flag. I think it's, like uh, if they if a company if I'm looking into a company and it's gone public via a SPAC, it is uh, a concern for me. And yeah. it, and I feel like the more SPACs I look at, or after a long enough time, people start to realize like how much the SPACs are bullshitting. Um, and it's starting to come out. <laughs> no, they're all going to with a lot of companies. They're all going to grow revenue 100 percent by 2024. This is guaranteed. All right, uh, but I think I just think the negatives outweigh the positives. Now I, I'm just I'm off them. Too much fraud. Sorry. Go to your next story. Okay, there was an ETF crime this week. A big, I mean, a big <laughs> ETF crime uh, last week. A new ETF launched called the American Conservative Value ETF. <laughs> Pull up. Wait, first off, love how it's value ETF, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but it's not like value. It's not like value all. stocks. It's, it's like the true conservative deep, value. It's the true deep value. Uh, the ticker is ACVF. I've got a few quotes here. It says, the first ETF will attempt that will attempt to align investments with the beliefs and values of politically conservative investors. We boycott the worst offending companies that do not align with our conservative values. If you are still reading, you are likely a fellow conservative. Our belief is that we all either unwittingly or begrudgingly support the liberal agenda with our current investments. <laughs> That's whether, the kicker there. <laughs> whether through mutual funds, ETFs, or 401ks, we all unfortunately own US companies that support the liberal agenda. Whenever I hear the words liberal agenda, I always think of Mac from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, the, there was a good ramp uh, tweet this week the, the, about the meat thing. I don't yeah. know what it was. Uh, I mean, this just, first of all, there's one of two things that I think is going on here. Do, do you think this is people trying to appeal to political views just to get money? Yes. Or do you think it's people that seriously believe this? No. And you think it's just kind of a play for funds? Yes. It's a total... I mean, yeah, yeah, they just want money. I don't know. They're just trying to play into it. This is just like... Uh, Never mix politics and investing. Yeah, I'm not going to tell anyone what my political views are, but yeah, don't mix politics and religion with investing. I'd be just as against uh, like an anti-conservative Woke, ETF. A W-O-K-E. <laughs> that, yeah, I'd be... It's just a bad idea. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> Short Google, Facebook, Twitter? I don't know. It's all opinions, too, so it's not... There's no, there's no quant. I mean, it's like, it's almost as much bullshit, and maybe this will anger some people. It's almost as much bullshit as ESG, almost, not as much. The thing is, let's say they took down, let's say this American conserv, whatever it is, the <laughs> conservative value ETF. Let's say this underperforms. <laughs> let's say this drops fifty percent. Are people still going to be happy saying like? We stuck it to them. <laughs> I don't know. And Google's up like a hundred percent again in the next five, seven years. Like, did you really stick it to them? I don't know, dude. I, I, um, I'm fascinated to see what the holdings are. 
And I'm Do fascinated to see Facebook, how it does. You think Facebook's, who's printing billions in cash, is going to be upset that you aren't supporting them with yeah. your 401k? If, it, it, if anything, something like this would make sense as a VC. But at this level of liquidity and... Uh, oh, you mean like against young companies that are or private companies that like need no if you're starting you know startup investments it would yeah, technically suppose. make sense because that's how you could you know if you had some views or whatever but vcs are doing that do that but i mean vcs are investing in how they see the world anyways so i guess that yeah i mean but you know this would just be more blatant yeah all right that was the do you ETF know what their fee was do you know what their fee was i have no idea probably like a three percent hopefully it's still, yeah hopefully it's three percent that'd be egregious I think, yeah, if you're going to align your politics with your investments. Don't. That's uh, underperformance, I think, is inevitable. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's like with a lot of stuff. I mean, it's not affecting anything. I don't know. Yeah. All right. What's your next one? Okay. Shopify and Pinterest partnership. I mentioned this before. Side note, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the show. It seems like all these Shopify, especially partners with every company imaginable. It's really not a big deal. But this one was interesting. Uh, here's a quote from the tweet from Pinterest. Now, more than 1.7 million Shopify merchants around the world can bring their products to Pinterest and turn them into shoppable product pins. Seems like a great idea. First question, any positives or negatives here for either company? Uh, I don't see the negatives. Uh, I would say they're synergies. <laughs> it feels like, I don't know, it feels like a logical fit. I, I I would if someone told me this has been going on for two years, I would have believed them. I didn't know that. Well, they already had a partnership. This is just making it global now for everyone. Uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, it seems like a positive for both Shopify and Pinterest. Okay. Um, yeah, I think. They, should, I think they ought to just become. <laughs> Shopify can just buy them. And yeah, become I mean, the total social commerce play. Yeah, so I think the only negative possibly over the long term, you know, is if any of these companies try to like move on and compete with each other. I think Pinterest may have the advantage because you're taking two steps here to get to the customer going through Shopify, then Pinterest, then the customer. Wait, sorry, repeat that. If you're a merchant, you go through Shopify, then through Pinterest, then you get to your customer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you're the customer, you're going through Pinterest to get to Shopify. Oh, no, I'm talking about your, as a merchant, you're going oh. through Shopify, then Pinterest to get to your customer. Yeah. Uh, in the short run, right, this increases demand for Pinterest because it gets ads, right, more ads on Pinterest and more GMV. I assume they get a, a cut of that. And then Shopify obviously gets more merchants. Um, sorry, sorry, not more merchants. They get more GMV, which they get a cut of. Um, and I'm assuming that the ads on Pinterest are better suited than you know Facebook, Google, especially better than Snapchat and Twitter. So probably good ROI on that. But I think in the long run, am I wrong in thinking that there's no reason Pinterest couldn't replicate Shopify's tools for merchants? Is that something that's not that doesn't well, make sense? I think it's harder than just saying we're going to do it. I mean, uh, Shopify has built out a pretty holistic suite of tools. Uh, and that, that would so obviously just take the a switching costs, the switching costs, and going everywhere else too. Yeah, I mean that there's obviously a lot of development costs in there, but do I think? Yeah, I think Pinterest. I think Pinterest probably should have tried to do something in house before kind of yeah giving into a Shopify partnership. They got the funds to do it. Yeah, they're big enough. Yeah, I wonder if merchants are like exclusive to sites. Hmm, I don't you know. know. I, mean? I don't know. Like, do they are they willing to set up like an Instagram or 
I don't know if Instagram has this where it's like direct shopping through Instagram. But, they have that now, yeah. Uh, will they do that? A Shopify site, a Facebook site, stuff like that, like all at once? Yeah, I don't know who. Okay, like, yeah, it just feels like Instagram and Pinterest have more of an advantage than Shopify. I could be reading it wrong. I don't know. I don't know the companies in and out, but. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I think maybe nothing comes of this, like every Shopify partnership. Yeah, well, it's it just seems funneling like them to a website. You could just say, like, we are now allowing embedded links. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's in all reality, I'm just trying to think of some downsides. I think, you know, most likely this is good for both companies. Yeah. Yeah. I All think right. an, a merger would be the ultimate. That would probably form a very what's strong a, social commerce company. Yeah, what's Pinterest trading at? I'm I mean, guessing, they're both trading at very high valuations. I'm guessing the combined, just off the top of my head, I'm guessing it's like $150 billion. Yeah, Shopify would have to issue a lot of stock. Uh, Pinterest market cap is $49 billion, so yeah, a lot of stock would have to be issued. But both two, two you know, premium value companies going together? Yeah. I don't know. doesn't change much. <laughs> All right, uh, my next story, Square and ARK this week teamed up to write their Bitcoin paper. So, uh, ARK Invest. ARK Invest. And people always get upset when we talk about ARK Invest because we're ARK haters or whatever, or we yeah, I'm question sexist. the liquidity of the funds and yeah. whatever. They uh, own each other. They own their own funds. Yes, but now I'm going to be totally honest. I did not read the paper, so I might be totally uninformed and maybe I should have made this point. Um, but there was a lot of stuff that came out of this of how Bitcoin's not that bad for the planet, that kind of thing. Now, energy usage. As far like as that. energy usage yeah. goes. So I went and kind of just looked up a few points. Um, University of Cambridge says more than half of a percent of the world's electricity consumption is used in mining Bitcoin. Uh, that's about the same carbon dioxide emissions as a small country like Sri Lanka or Jordan, according to TechCrunch. Um, right now, Renewable energy makes up 39% of total mining energy consumption. Okay, so it's less than half. Jack Dorsey tweeted this week, Bitcoin incentivizes renewable energy. Okay, they're, uh, incentivizing is so different than using. I uh, know. More than half, it, it incentivizes renewable energy, but the yeah, cheapest well, form is not renewable, and people choose most of the time to use a non-renewable energy, but it incentivizes it. And so yeah, people were kind of tweeting back at him. Someone said, uh, smoking in encourages cancer research. That's a good analogy, I think, yeah. It just, I actually like Jack Dorsey. This feels like it was Jack trying to rationalize a decision that he already made and can't go back on. Potentially. It's like he was so committed to Bitcoin that if he backs out now, I mean, he's already put, what, 5% of the square balance sheet on Bitcoin? And he's, a, he's been a lover of Bitcoin for years, yeah. And so now that all this stuff has come up, it seems like, well, he had to find a way to justify that purchase and make sense or pretend that it's good for the environment. When it literally isn't. More than half, more than half the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's the two points I have in here. One, it says, you know, uh, 39% of mining energy, or sorry, mining is using renewable energy. That's great. But look, if you're using 39% to create 61% is not. I know, I know. But also, 39% of it is used to create magic beans like 
that's just that's <laughs> like just Dogecoin? energy. That's just energy. Sorry, I don't want to insult anyone, but uh, yeah, like the, think of some of the cryptos that are so irrelevant. Oh, it's not just Bitcoin. Mike. I don't even want to say the one, the funniest one from last yeah, week. That some, one was amazing. Uh, no, okay, so the point I'm trying to make is that energy is not being used for anything right now. It's just magic beans that are going up in value. It could be used to light homes and stuff like that. Also, I couldn't take the paper seriously. I actually read it um, just because I spend my time hating on Bitcoin and ARK Invest like a curmudgeon. Uh, and it said in the paper that something about creating newly created electrons was a quote that they could. So the whole point is that since a lot of the solar and wind stuff is uh, unreliable, that when it's and so like during peak hours when it's generating energy, it, it has more than people need. And there's no place to store it right now, which is why batteries are very important. They said that when the solar and wind power that's being generated is there's too much it's over the capacity that's it's needed it could go back to mining bitcoin and it's like yeah but it's still mining something useless and they, they said this thing about newly created electrons and it's just not possible guys i mean electrons can't be created they're just there also what you like to any of the bitcoin bitcoin owners that are listening i apologize but right yeah, now sorry this has very little utility how many yeah. people are accumulating Bitcoin to spend it? Look, look, I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, I was at like a, a golf fundraiser with people that are, you know, most of them are people are like 15, 60 years old. No one, like the stuff that you're reading on Twitter and the Bitcoin community and stuff like that, it's so far from actual reality. It's insane. Like we're even farther into it, like with FinTwit kind of with stuff yeah. like that where it can be a bubble. Like do people care about this stuff so much? Oh my God, like... Uh, do you see this new DeFi announcement? It's like, dude, you guys are not, I'm sorry, living in that is actual main, reality. Yeah. It means nothing to 99%. Main Street the, doesn't care. And if it is Main Street, there's buying Dogecoin. Like, the only reason I have anyone, all any of my friends uh, talk about crypto is when they're just buying Dogecoin because it's a joke, like $50 worth. Yeah. It's insane to me. I mean, but this mining stuff is even worse because it's not even logical. Like, I mean... Either it's it's useful or it's not. It's I, justification. I mean, can, it's it's such a waste of energy. I can't get over it. It's All such right. a goddamn waste of energy. All right, what's your story? Okay, Biden nicotine regulation. This one's interesting. Government is apparently proposing to curb nicotine content in cigarettes. There's a bit of a catch twenty two because you know with tobacco stocks, if there's more volumes because people need you know kind of a light beer situation, that could actually be beneficial. Um, stocks obviously like get hit majorly because of this and without hitting any like moral or whether you agree with the legislation or talking about whether it's right to invest in tobacco stock is this just the price of admission to own these things because I saw a lot of people get shaken out by it and it seems like well yeah guys this is why they outperform you know right uh, yeah well so for one it was they are going to propose they're thinking about proposing yeah, yeah this proposal like that doesn't mean it's going to pass and they haven't even proposed it so first of all and i don't think it would pass because there is uh, the negatives to it is let's say people really wanted go study prohibition let's say people really wanted the high nicotine cigarettes or high uh yeah high, high nicotine cigarettes they'll get them through sources that aren't 
uh, controlled by the government, which means government doesn't get taxes on those. And the regulation to make sure it's safe. Um, yeah. Outs- obviously, you know, long term, whatever, but like dangerous, kind of like with those old vaping things a few years ago. It. Uh, and then there is the the sort of school of thought that if you lighten the nicotine load, maybe people are just going to smoke twice as much to get the same buzz. Yeah. Um, I don't and know. every single time legislation's apo- like proposed or thought about being proposed, people are like, good, finally cracking down. Listen, legislation is never... It's been imp- imposed for ni- 30 years now. Legislation has never killed Altria. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the marketing ban, you think that would do something? Yeah. Well, and there's all their companies, Philip Morris, BTI. Um, but yeah, you kind of said this too. Like, does it make sense that if they banned or neutralized this type of stuff, would the cigarette cigar industry end up being more like prohibition, like more dangerous than it was beforehand? Is that kind of what you're saying? I think so. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think some people, I mean, uh, it's sort of a political take, but I think some people are consenting adults that are just choosing to smoke yeah. uh, cigarettes. Um, they understand the risks. that away, they do yeah. understand the risks, uh, I would say for the most part. Uh, taking away a controlled source for that, they're going to go, they're just going to look for other places to find it. Yeah. Kind of interesting, the non-combustible stuff, you know, those nicotine pouches. That yeah, seems, and let's those say things everything those switched things to those on products Zins, or Zins, that kind of stuff, that's 80% operative margin. Yeah, they, they got better margins for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I guess people wouldn't be upset with that. Um, yeah, I guess nothing else really. Yeah, it's. I guess you understand the stuff about 18 under and stuff like that, but for people that are... I just don't think it's going to pass. I, I really don't. I understand the concerns. Um, I don't. I obviously don't advocate for the product, but people can do to, what they want. To say this business model hasn't been completely, re- like, hasn't withstood the test of time is naive. It's been around. I think Philip Morris specifically has been around for more than 150 years. Yeah, I'm not sure if the name, but it's the same company. You know, same brands. And stuff you don't like think that. people were saying the same stuff in 1999 about how bad cigarettes were? Uh, you, I'm with you. The the, the customers know. I know the customers are all aware. Again, if they're adults, they all are all aware. Um, of the it seems, yeah, it's weird that, and it just seems to me again like the price of admission for owning these things. Like, there's going to yeah. be legislation. That's that's the big risk. I mean, that's it only dropped like five percent. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it sounds like more noise than news. Hey, um, dividend yields up. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as the stock's down, divvy's yeah. up. And look, right. look, don't uh, don't hate on us for not being anti-cigarettes. Don't want to go over that ESG stuff again. But yeah. right. don't hate us for that. Uh, no more stories, right? Nope. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we are general partners at Arch Capital. Um, so partners there may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.